Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My guest today is John Grossman, CEO of Classic Hotels and Resorts, a mission-focused owner and operator of independent hotels on the West Coast and Mountain West. With hotels ranging from upscale resorts to hip roadside motels, the company is known for design and creating those hard to describe moments. I first met John through YPO and fast became interested in his unique ability to create inspired spaces. In this episode, we dive into how John sources his deals, develops a strategy, and leads his operating team to execute a cohesive vision. Please enjoy my conversation today with John Grossman. So John Grossman, excited to be having this conversation today. And one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you is because you have a hospitality portfolio that is the envy of many hospitality owners throughout the country, including myself. The style is just so good. And I think a good place to start is maybe just to give some of the listeners a little bit about your background. Okay, great. Yeah, so I appreciate the intro and thanks for the kudos on the portfolio. It's definitely something we've been building over the last 10 years or so, but our focus is primarily in the Mountain West, Intermountain, kind of West, uh, Southwest region, along with the California coast right now. So we have nine hotels total in the portfolio. That's about 1,350 rooms. And then we have a, a new standalone restaurant, which will eventually become a hotel once we get through the entitlement process. All of the hotels in the portfolio are independent. Uh, we're not affiliated with any brand or franchise agreements. We've got all the infrastructure in-house, sales, marketing, operational, leadership. And it allows us to be pretty nimble, pretty flexible, especially when you go through difficult times like we had most recently with the pandemic, of course. And it allows us to be a little bit more, I guess, scrappy, if you will, in terms of competition, landscape, and other things that we're all up against as uh, independent hotel owners and operators. So our hotel portfolio has uh, two hotels in Carmel-by-the-Sea, two in Laguna Beach, two in the Phoenix area, new one up in Flagstaff, and then two properties in Boise, Idaho as well, along with the restaurant that I mentioned, which is actually in Paradise Valley. So that's what the landscape is like today. And you know, our focus right now is really to maintain a geographic concentration. Purpose for that is really twofold. First and foremost, we think it's the quickest and most efficient path to value creation because we can have our eyes and bodies on the properties as much as possible. And so we have a 
mandate to have a direct flight or one flight connection from Phoenix, Arizona, which is where our team is based. And then the second reason is uh, quality of life. So I'm on the road a lot. My team's on the road a lot. But, you know, the goal is to get out there to the properties and back and hopefully do a day trip if we can or a simple overnight. And so that's really where we landed in terms of keeping our geographic focus to the West and Intermountain West. Quality of life seems to be synonymous with the West Coast. And you're not the only one because what happened since COVID is just this really interesting explosion of leisure travel. And it seemed like you were at the forefront of that. So what what about leisure and what about independent hotels is so interesting to you? Yeah, I think, you know, we kind of got lucky in terms of the pandemic and all of the demand drivers that it led to. And I say that because we focused on markets that allowed us to have an independent presence. And, you know, when you find yourself uh, to those opportunities, they really lend themselves to being markets where you're selling the market, right? So Carmel by the Sea is a place that you select. And then we just fight for your eyeballs as you go on your search path and descend where you want to go. And so it allows us to be kind of in niche markets where we can have an outsized presence. And then on the flip side, you know, our, our major footprint is in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's a lot of group business. So we've kind of got the dichotomy between, you know, heavy leisure on the smaller boutique side and then heavy group on the larger big boxes that we have. So it's just, you know, kind of a opportunistic view on things. And fortunately enough, it'll let us be in a good position to weather the storm that we just went through. You know, I think all of us were cringing as we went into the pandemic. And then we were very, very pleased to see that the markets that we're in really lent themselves to strong leisure demand which absolutely floated the boat, uh, so to speak, through the pandemic and then allowed a real strong snapback as we came back with a lot of the revenge travel and revenge weddings. And I mean, other kind of silly terminologies, but they're true. They they were really (laughs) welcomed uh, phenomenon for us. So how did you avoid in your history of your company, the franchising model? And how did you have the confidence to just do it yourself on the independent side? Because a lot of people are nervous about it. They're saying, well, I'm not going to be able to get financing or I'm not going to be able to get the eyeballs. So what gave you the confidence to go out and do that? Is it just the location or is there something else? Well, as you know, a, a bit of the history in our company, you're aware, of course, is that it's a family business. So it's a, I'm a second generation leader of the business. And I, I bring that up to say that we had the uh, credibility and the longstanding track record to allow us to get the financing on an independent basis. And I think that ends up being a major hurdle for a lot of independent operators. And that's why you see the proliferation of soft brands. And it makes a lot of sense, right? If if you don't have a track record, you need that marketing engine behind you in order to get the confidence from the lending partners that you need, you know, construction and otherwise to move forward with these projects. So that was one hurdle that fortunately for us was a little bit easier to clear. And then, you know, the other issue, of course, is the chicken or egg scenario with regards to the infrastructure that's required to support an operation like this. And in that case as well, we had the infrastructure, we had enough scale to amortize those costs, and then we could layer on uh, with you know various independent opportunities thereafter. But without the infrastructure, you know, it's really hard to get going, and that ends up being a major hurdle as well. And when you say infrastructure, what do you actually mean by that? So we have a, a centralized reservation system with a team in Phoenix. We have a decentralized sales force in uh, 12 cities across the nation. You know, those two components by themselves are major infrastructure pieces. 
And then we have a really great pedigree of op operational leaders that have come from, you know, independent-like experiences, of course, Ritz-Carlton and, you know, Four Seasons. I say independent-like in terms of the quality that they provide, the attention to detail, and a lot of things that lend themselves really well to independent operators and just kind of a DNA that allows our team to thrive, of course, because they're thinking creatively and then giving them the, the flexibility to go beyond what's mandated by a lot of the brand standards. That's interesting. So what about those people makes them a good fit for your company, having been at a Ritz-Carlton, a Four Seasons, maybe there's a Hilton in there? And what have you learned from them? And consequently, what are you teaching them the way of the wise, independent one? Well, it's interesting. I think it's it's actually kind of a pull scenario for them, right? I think they were entrepreneurs in spirit. And they came up through a pedigree where they, you know, an institutional framework that allowed them to understand the business and understand the attention to detail that's required to provide great service. But they weren't satisfied, I don't think, in the roles that they were in. And so you kind of get this certain percentage of folks that that want to be, I don't want to say more creative because these other companies are incredibly creative, but but a bit more aggressive, a little bit more tenacious, a little bit more eager to, to kind of bite off problems themselves and solve them independently. and you know, we open the door for them, they walk right through it. And uh, the folks that have stayed with us really thrive in that environment. And again, because the pandemic's so fresh in mind, it allowed us to be incredibly nimble and overcome tremendous adversity because they were positioned to have that perspective and outlook and a kind of tenacious spirit. And it's just part of the DNA that they have. And then of course, it propagates itself within the organization their internal idea sharing, you know, problem solving, problem making and overcoming is just sort of this refreshing, exciting uh, framework for them to uh, thrive within. You mentioned location a couple of times. I always stress to my team that it's not always that complicated. It's location, location, location. Do you have almost like a filter or a criteria that you look for? When you're investing, I know you said you want to be in the Intermountain West or the West Coast, but once you get there on the map, what are you looking for? Yeah, it's interesting. I think we've we've we found ourselves kind of having three three silos of business at the moment, and and we're open to more. But on the ultra kind of high barrier entry, leisure focused markets, you know, you have places in California like Carmel by the Sea, which actually has a hotel moratorium. So there's already a, a built-in barrier to entry. And then you have Laguna Beach, which has a de facto moratorium on rooms vis-a-vis -vis the California Coastal Commission and the entitlement process. It's incredibly difficult. And so when you look at some of those markets, they're just iconic locations that that have a brand value that is is just incredible to leverage. And you know, to get in is hard to thrive is difficult, but in those markets in particular, the the long-term private equity value creation model is is really accretive for us. And so we can be patient. We can say that we have a longer uh, return horizon and that's okay because we believe in the long-term value that those those brands provide. And so if you look at the, the up and down the coast, you know, we're focused on places of course like Santa Barbara, La Jolla and Sanitas, you know, up in the central coast of course as well, uh, even in the Bay Area, but in the smaller niche markets that that really have the brand value established already. And then on the group side, as I mentioned, 
you know, it's just a uh, high beta markets. The Phoenix is a perfect market for us. You know, we, we always talk about Phoenix being like a snake crawling up a hill, right? It dips and it boosts and dips and boosts, but it's always in a very upward trajectory. And that's, you know, benefited, of course, by a tremendous demographic profile, which has only been boosted even further by the pandemic. And then the third branch of business that we've just dipped our toe into is kind of this, it's definitely inspired by the graduate model, but layering on kind of the the Intermountain West disbursement of uh, in-migration. So Boise, Idaho's tremendous beneficiary that absolutely fit in that category. We just went into Flagstaff. Uh, we've got our eyes, of course, in markets in Montana, like Bozeman and Missoula. So they're places that have, you know, uh, you know, sizable population to begin with, then a university, and then some ancillary drivers, whether it be a national park or recreational opportunities, uh, you know, access to nature and beauty. So Bend, Chico, Missoula, Bozeman, Eugene, places like that, that you can kind of see your, your way through to layering on a really nice leisure experience and then tapping into some of the demand drivers, as well as some of the group opportunities that are afforded in markets. Like, for example, Flagstaff is a Western regional headquarters for Gore Technologies. It has NAU. It has a major USGS presence. And then you have two and a half million visitors a year passing through Flagstaff to get to the Grand Canyon. And we were the first, I guess, designed for boutique hotel to enter the market. And so far, so good. So we just uh, seen those opportunities and that particular brand we'd like to roll out in some of those you know, Mountain West target towns that I mentioned. I want to come back to that because that one is just so applicable for a lot of folks and a lot of listeners because it seems very attainable. The location might not be attainable for everyone, but what you did seems like, yeah, maybe I could do that, but no one can really do that. It's really hard. So when you're in these locations like... Santa Barbara, Carmel, are are you just overpaying for this stuff? Are you getting in with some brokers? How, how are you finding these things in a place where there's a moratorium on hotel rooms or by legislation, you effectively can't build a hotel room? What What, what is the secret there? Patience, you know. Sure, we'll have to overpay or, or, or there'll be a moment in time where it feels like you're overpaying. But most most of all, it's patience, and we just know that we we aren't going to you know hit many. The ones we hit will be highly scrutinized. You know this really difficult to uh, access off market opportunity stuff really never comes to pass, right? I think those are just like super rare, and they occupy you know outsized headspace in people's minds. But I just don't think they happen that often. People are too sophisticated, even the mom and pops that have had it in their family for two or three generations, you know, they're hiring first-rate brokers and going through a normal process as far as we have experienced. And so, uh, you know, in those markets, once we're able to plant a flag of size, of scale, so in Laguna, our first hotel was 70 rooms, our second hotel was 36 rooms, and our third hotel could be 12 or 20 rooms. And that's because we're able to have the infrastructure we can you know, afford a really high quality GM who can then be an area GM very quickly. And we can run you know, multiple hotels as if they're one hotel because the markets are so small and the geographies of those hotels is so proximate to each other that they can easily be serviced by a great high quality team. But you, 
for us at least, and this is not rocket science, of course, getting in with scale is, is the most important litmus test for these markets. So if we were to go into Santa Barbara or into La Jolla, you know, we'd have to enter the market with something that had enough scale or high enough rev par to afford a really high quality GM. Okay. So uh, does that mean, layer, yeah. So does that mean then that you're not going in and buying a 30 room hotel as your first investment in a new market that you really have to start with let's say 70 plus, and then maybe you're layering in on top of that with smaller hotels as they become available? Exactly. Or it might be a, a, a small portfolio buy. So maybe in Santa Barbara, there's two hotels of 30 or 40 rooms each, and you buy them both at the same time. It doesn't happen very frequently, but absolutely, we need to go into the market with something of consequence, and then we can back ourselves into smaller opportunities. And so in Flagstaff, you know, We've got our eye on two hotels in particular that we would never be able to buy uh, as an entree into the market. But now that we've got the infrastructure with a 125-room hotel, it's in our scope and we can maybe overpay a little bit, right? And we can find our way to that opportunity that is you know, not necessarily economic for other folks to come in for an opening foray. And when you go into a market like that where you start to maybe see a vision of a cluster, is each hotel going to be a little bit different? Or are they just going to be more of the same of what the original is? Like, are you going to do maybe a more outdoor-focused budget version? Are you going to do more of a luxe version? Or are you going to do more of a hostile version? Or are they all just the same? Yeah, I think the buildings tell you what they need to be. And so in Flagstaff, for example, we have this uh, 1962 Howard Johnson, which is very much lending itself to this idea of the High Country Motor Lodge, which is the brand that we created. And if we find other buildings like that, then we can apply that brand. Now, in Flagstaff, again, there's a couple of hotel opportunities. One would be a true kind of small-scale mom-and-pop motor lodge, which we could lend, we could layer on some nice design and make it feel really bespoke and intimate. And the other one's kind of an older, you know, smaller room typology building, which might have a combination of some hostel-like rooms and some more traditional hotel rooms. And, you know, I think that market itself is relatively low rated. So there's not going to be a huge spread in the opportunity to kind of slice the profile of those experiences, but they'll be different enough. And we'll kind of lean into the building in ways that feel really appropriate and germane to kind of the, the sense of what we think should be there. I think that's, as a general comment, one of our company mantras is don't fight the building. And so what we mean by that is look at the bones, understand the bones. If it's the right opportunity, then lean into what's there. As opposed to being additive, we tried to peel everything back to what we believe the essence of that experience should have been or always wanted to be. So we talk about not fighting the building, and then we talk about the concept of telling the lie that tells the truth. And so what I mean by that is what is the true essence of this experience and how is it that we can build a white lie around it to lead you to feel a certain way about what you think might have always been uh, there, but that has newly arrived vis-a-vis -vis our design overlay and conceptual pillars, but really trying to, to find what the essence of the place and the space always wanted to be. And, and that's really where we start with any of our opportunities. All right. So I really want you to break down the underwriting side of your analysis 
on this Flagstaff deal. How do you have conviction to do a deal like this in a new market? Break it down. Yeah, so this, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Flagstaff market is a relatively low-rated market, but a very high occupancy market. And that's to do with the demand drivers you know, that we mentioned, Grand Canyon, NAU, Gore Technologies, oh, good old-fashioned road tripping has always been strong on Route 66, of course, as well. And in this case, the the hotel that we unearthed had uh, great physical attributes, large footprint, lots of open space to utilize and reconceptualize. But at the end of the day, I mean, it was nearly falling down. Older vintage building hadn't been looked after super well, and as a result, was doing about you know forty dollar ADR, but at very high occupancy, it was around ninety two percent at the time. And we said, look, we can recreate this experience in a way that is nostalgic, that is resonant, that meets the desires of a lot of the leisure travelers now that are they're hitting the road and that are rediscovering the West. And in doing so, we were able to home in on a couple of the market leaders. And we were seeing that the ADR, that the top tier of the properties and market we're doing is actually about $120 a night ADR. And so, you know, big gap for us to go from $40 to 120 But that was the opportunity before us. And that was the risk that we took. And so the benefit of taking such a low rated property with so many difficulties to a higher rate, of course, was we were able to buy it very well. And so the investment in the property was more than double the original cost. So our renovation budget was around 110 or 15% of the original physical cost of the existing asset. And so it was a major lift. We touched everywhere, everything on the property, but we retained the essence of the Motor Lodge experience that we inherited. Again, not wanting to fight the building, we celebrated the building but we then layered in aspects that made it more of an experience that we believed it represented and that we thought that the consumer would resonate with. And so that included adding a suite product, which was three tiny houses. You know, the tiny house craze is strong. You've got comps like AutoCamp and Under Canvas, and I can't remember the other tiny house. Did you look at doing that? Adding some AutoCamp style campers or some tents? We did. We actually, we talked briefly with AutoCamp about it, but it was just too small for them. So we ended up just building our own. We have three tiny houses, which are the suites. And then we had, we built two additional tiny houses, which ended up being this uh, Nordic spa component that we wanted to create. So this is two private saunas rented by the hour. They have private courtyards with an outdoor fire pit, cold plunge, hot tub, and you you know, find yourself to a, a Nordic spa circuit where you kind of go through this thermal experience from hot to cold with resting time, you know, in between around the fire pit with... You Do you know, have a cold plunge? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's the temperature? So the cold plunge is actually our, our unheated pool. So in the winter, it's very, very cold. And in the summer, it stays cold. And then we also have one of those bucket showers, like the, the high volume overhead pool showers. So that's kept at very, very cold temperatures. So between the cold plunge and the cold shower and then the hot tub and the, the sauna, you know, we actually 
conceived of that with the idea that if you're passing through Flagstaff and headed to the Grand Canyon, you're focused on being in the outdoors. We also recognize that Flagstaff is a grittier, you know, more authentic mountain town and not known for its hospitality experiences. But what's what's right next door, of course, of course, is Sedona, which is very, very well known for high-end luxury hospitality experiences and spas. And so there was actually this kind of like idea to thumb our nose a little bit at Sedona and say, look, we're not you. We're never going to be you. And we know that people who are coming through Flagstaff want something different than than Sedona. We did not try and replicate what was on offer there. And so the idea of this Nordic spa was to really be outdoors, indoor, outdoor, and have it be kind of rustic and fun and and casual and and convivial and to have a private sauna that you know fits you and your five friends and you come up come out of the Grand Canyon or you come down from a day of skiing at Snowbull, you know, it's just this fun kind of unique way to still find yourself in the outdoors, but have it kind of in a convenient and high touch hospitality experience nonetheless. And are you figuring out who your guest is when you're underwriting the deal from the start? Or is that evolving when you bring in a design team and you start going through what you want it to be? And how do you even figure out what you want it to be? Like you, you talked about Sonoma, but or Sedona, how, how did you even know that that was going to be the strategy? It's emergent a little bit. I think, I think in some ways, you know, we understand enough of the demographic profile of who is already coming there. And then we're taking some risks to say, we want to self-select in new visitors to come and visit us that in some cases may not have found the opportunity to even stay in Flagstaff. So for example, with Snowbull, you know, that's the nearest ski resort to Phoenix, Arizona, which now has about 5 million people in the metro area. That's a two-hour drive. And people were typically doing day trips or staying in some of the hotels in Flagstaff. But if we just get a small percentage of people who now see us as an opportunity, as a great place to stay to, to support, you know, their ski trip that weekend, I mean, it doesn't take much to fill up. 120 rooms when when the ski hills getting I don't know how many thousand visitors a day on a weekend and we really wanted to you know provide a a different experience something that didn't exist in market so on the one hand it was a risk on the other hand it it felt like low hanging fruit and then as we layered in kind of the design concept things like the tiny houses emerged as a way to have a, a sweet product like a higher cost higher touch experience. And then the Nordic spa came thereafter, which was to say, you know, this is kind of a marketing opportunity to, to have something that's really easy to understand, unique, not necessarily common experience that you can find in other places, but that makes a lot of sense for this particular hotel in this particular location. And that's a lot of what we do. You know, we, the joy of course, of doing a different concept or a different design experience in every hotel allows us to to lean into the various aspects of what we believe should be on offer and what that folks want to experience. And it also makes it more difficult and costly and time consuming and all the things that, you know, we have to kind of slightly reinvent the wheel every time. I think in the, in the long run, it's, it's where we have the greatest pathway towards true value creation and these kind of unique bespoke experiences. 
resonate. And on a deal like this, who's designing it for you? Do you have an in-house team? Are you working with outside designers? We we don't have any in-house team. And I, I always work. I mean, one of my favorite aspects of my job, and, and you and I have talked about this, is kind of understanding the design landscape. You know, at, at the top of the design pinnacle, there's it's a very small ecosystem, right? There's a lot of designers, a lot of great designers, but it's pretty rarefied air near the top. And having those relationships established, uh, maintaining those relationships over time, and then being able to approach a high-quality, high-rate design team for a given opportunity is is a significant portion of what I do day to day, and significant contributor to the to the value that we're able to create. And so, in this particular case, this was a designer that had had seven years at. Avroco and then two years at Soho and had started her own firm. And so it was perfect timing. This was her first hotel project on her own and one where I knew she was going to pour her heart and soul into it. And she also was from the mountains. She grew up in Park City, so she understood what it meant to be in a mountain town. So it was just kind of a great confluence of factors that led us to working with her. And she absolutely knocked it out of the park and was the right moment in time for us to work together on this particular opportunity. I think I'm getting it because we, we've talked about this, right? And there's so many good designers, but those good designers have gotten so expensive. And I was wondering on a small project like this, how you justify that expense, how you work it into the overall budget. So is that something that you've done before, found an emerging designer and maybe taken a little bit of a risk, but overall... It works and you know the design's gonna be great. You might have to work a little harder. You might have some challenges along the way, but at the end of the day, that's what you have to do to get it done. Is that the thought process? Especially on these smaller deals that that could not support, you know, the exorbitant design fees that the the ultra top tier now command. I'd say that she's obviously gonna be moving into that uh, trajectory. I mean, that's obviously her goal, but you know, again, it was a moment in time where 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 it was a mutual opportunity to to do something great, for it to be scrappy, to be bootstrappy, and all of the things that it needed to be, but to, to be a very high quality, high level design expression, you know, that was in her DNA through the experience that she'd had with these very reputable and and high quality firms that she'd been with previously. So I think that was a moment in time, and we've we've done that elsewhere in at Hotel Carmel, for example, which is a 30-room hotel in, in Carmel. We worked with another emerging designer that had just broken off at that time and started uh, his own firm. And, and so it was the same kind of circumstance. But, you know, those are, it, I find it a struggle to keep tabs on who's moving, when they're moving, having known them at a previous design firm and then having them go out on their own. It's tough. And, you know, I always admire folks that are able to find that inflection point and leverage that kind of hungry moment in time that is launching careers. So it's it's not always attainable, but it, in this case, it worked out well for us. And, and uh, it's just something that you kind of get lucky with. So on these new hotels that you're doing, you have to prioritize certain things because of budget. What are you prioritizing now going forward? And what are those decisions that you're making to make the project better 
and maybe you're going to sacrifice something else. What, what are some of those items? Yeah, I think limiting construction as much as possible is essential, right? So we, we really practice the mantra of like, again, don't fight the building. What does that mean when you're actually getting into the nuts and bolts of construction? That means some cases or mostly all cases never move a wall, right? Y'all want bigger bathrooms, but we just can't move walls. And so we live with what we have. We all want new bathroom tile, but in some cases, the tile is good enough and we can just regrout. There's these major cost hurdles that, that sometimes seem essential, but you have to, I think, squint your eyes and, and realize that the thing you hated most or the thing that was most difficult about leaving alone can be less of an eyesore once everything else is done. And you have to trust that your audience, your your guest, will either understand and appreciate the fact that you left it alone or other aspects of the project that will be nice enough or, or beautiful enough that it allows the tapestry to elicit an experience that is acceptable and enjoyable and beautiful in a way that, you know, again, the constraints... A lot of these constraints too, we talk about being benevolent obstacles. And if you look at them that way, then it, it makes it a little bit easier to move past these things that you think are just abhorrent and unacceptable. <laughs> I will say I do admire, I just went and checked out the new Pally House in West Hollywood. And I do admire the work that Avi Broch does. He, I, I believe he does that as well as anyone I've seen. And in the last few projects of his that I've toured, he has left alone the bathroom tile and he's added other design elements within the bathroom that help subsume the, the, the tile itself. Well, it, at the Pally House West Hollywood, he actually did something I've never seen before, which I plan to appropriate when it's the right time to do so. But he put up a actually a, a residential curtain on the shower glass door that was kind of tied back with a bow and that could actually be slid across. It was on a, a traditional curtain track. And what that did was just take your eye to the curtain and this kind of beautiful gathered curtain and obscured, you know, the first look that you have in the bathroom at this kind of older bathroom tile. And it just made it kind of fade into the background. And then he also put in some really interesting kind of traditional Richwood looking kind of beadboard around the whole bathroom wall itself. And so those two elements, which are relatively low cost, I mean, certainly a fraction of the cost of redoing the bathroom tile, made it so that the overall bathroom experience was totally acceptable and beautiful. And I thought that was a very clever use of, of design dollars, as opposed to what I would do, and many of us would do, is look at the bathroom tile and say, we can't live with this, we got to rip it out. And, you know, that can be ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a room right now. Uh, maybe more. I mean, it's just ridiculously how how expensive that could be. It, it is so ridiculous how costs are right now. And it's these little ideas that really bring to mind some of these geniuses in the boutique and lifestyle hospitality space. Talking Barry Sternlicht, Avi Broch that you mentioned, Andre Balash, Schrager. What, what, what separates these folks, the geniuses, from those that are very good, well, if other I, than shower curtains. If I knew that, you'd put my name with that with that list of people. <laughs> I don't. But you it, can identify it. So, what yeah. are you seeing in these hotels that 
they're getting right? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question, and I think I think there's just there's certain people that have this tremendous capacity for right brain left brain expression, right? And I think Barry Sternlich would be a great example of a right brain left brain guy who has it all. You know, he has design sense, he has a business sense, and he's got he's got the aggressive nature within him to action on a tremendous scale and just really remarkable kind of market leading ideas. And so I, I just think it, it comes, it boils down to these special folks that have the ability to tune into the business imperatives and the design imperatives that come together in a, in, in a concoction that is a force multiplier for value creation of, of these deals. You know, I, I also think that there's, there's a lot of smart things that they do, right? I mean, the Avi Brosh example, of course, saved a lot of money. I remember going to the public hotel in Chicago. I think that was the first public hotel, which is no longer. But I went into the rooms there and, you know, the common areas to begin with are so beautiful. It was it was such a beautiful kind of Schrager-esque job and the restaurant, everything about it was just such an, a wow. And it was so overwhelmingly beautiful that by the time you got to your room, you know, the residual effect of that first impression allowed <laughs> allowed you to forgive the limited scope of work that they did in the guest rooms and he basically painted the whole room white he left everything alone had very very limited ff and e and like these tiny little pictures that were were just bizarrely small but something about the way that they were allowed to breathe on the walls kind of made them appear bigger and more impactful than they were and it was just these tiny little touches that made the rooms made you feel like these rooms are just fine. Like I feel fine in this place. I feel good in this place. It's elegant. It's clean. It's simple, but it was stark comparison to the, to the common areas and the overwhelming kind of impressive nature of, of the arrival experience. And so I think, you know, understanding where to be restrained, where to overwhelm is a really, you know, interesting and difficult to put your finger on value creation technique that these titans of the business were able to understand and and lean into so are you prioritizing in a lot of your properties the public spaces over certain guest room decisions because in the guest room the costs just multiply out or do you not necessarily think that way no absolutely i think uh, it depends on the rates that are that are achievable but for example at high country motor lodge we had to be very 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 restrained in the guest rooms and we'd leaned much more into the common areas and you know it allowed us to be more efficient with the spend you know we have like fiberglass shower pans you know and simple subway tile and that was as much as we could do in the bathrooms and then we we applied some you know interesting beadboard and other elements in the guest rooms again really simple straightforward but paint and and some tactile layering uh, went a long way there and we just cleaned it up and kind of took the opinion that this is a room that needs to function well. It can be very simple. It can be restrained, but that most people want to spend you know a lot of their time either in the Nordic Spa or the hot tub or in the in the common areas. And you know we've got a beautifully oversized uh, lobby that has lots of different nooks and crannies and different places to spend a lot of your time. And the room itself can be used for sleeping and showering. And the rest of the time you kind of want to be out out and about with people. And I think especially during the you know, post-pandemic era that we're in, uh, people want to be around other people as much as possible, as long as they feel comfortable in doing so. And we're seeing that project at least benefit from that desire at this time. 
So now are you designing your hotels going forward in a more community-oriented way in the public areas, in the outside areas to leverage that trend that you're seeing? You know, I think when we started moving into the boutique space, we were very F&B averse. And I think that we're still very cautious about trying to be too much, to be too too heavily focused on F&B in terms of understanding the risks associated with food wastage and food costs, but also labor costs and the things that go into, you know, very high-end food and beverage offerings. And so, you know, we keep very close eye on on keeping a very simple and efficient offering on the actual food and beverage side, but making sure that those things are really, really well done, kind of doing less but doing them better is, is a mantra of ours. And then focusing on the spaces to compel and you know energize folks to, to linger and spend time and feel comfortable and confident that you know it's just a that you don't have to be eating and drinking the whole time in these spaces. We want them to be places for for the in-between moments. And and I think that's where the design becomes super valuable. And I think that's the balance that we try and find because we understand how difficult food and beverage is and we do everything in-house. We do it all ourselves. We haven't done any partnerships. Uh, someday we will if it's the right opportunity, of course, but at this stage, um, that's one of our own internal benevolent constraints that we stay focused on. John, I think that's a contrarian view because everything I tend to hear and see is the focus and the emphasis and the effort that people put into these elaborate F&B outlets in their hotels, whether it's a bar or a club or a restaurant. So what what are you doing to avoid that? How are you creating these moments? The podcast is called Master of Moments. How are you creating these moments without such a heavy emphasis on the F&B component in a lifestyle hotel? Well, it's a risk. And I find myself wanting to be competitive and looking at folks who are doing great food and beverage experiences and wanting to be that. And I love that for myself. I'm drawn to that as others are. And it's hard, right? It's hard to to view it as a benevolent constraint. And it's hard to say, this is what we're good at. We're going to deliver what we're good at and we're going to stay in our lane. And and in doing so, as long as we can deliver very high quality experience within our lane, then we believe that it's it's an acceptable experience that's going to be additive and accretive in totality for the project itself. But it is hard to, 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 to do that. I will say, for example, in, high, in Flagstaff, we developed a menu around the idea that every component of the food and beverage experience should be trainable in a very short period of time and have the least moving parts possible. And that goes for food and the beverage. I mean, right now, you and I could get trained up on the beverage program and we could be bartenders there this evening. And we could do a great job because we have tapped cocktails. We have specialty cocktails that have, you know, three ingredients or less. We have a very limited selection of specialty cocktails that totally resonate with the experience. We've got a bunch of boiler makers, which are obviously just a shot and a beer, but they're conceived of in a way that supports the overall experience and really makes a lot of sense. And so 
that's really our goal when we layer in the food and beverage to make it resonate and not feel restrained when you experience it but but you know be thoughtful about what we put in so the throughputs are, are minimized as much as possible so i'm really interested in your secret sauce because this to me is a very big differentiator from a lot of folks and i'm curious if there's more i'm wondering is there a variable or something that you consider when you're analyzing a new investment that would surprise some of the listeners? I don't necessarily think so. I think to your comment earlier in this discussion with regards to the simplicity of, of real estate, right? Like location is the most important thing. We all know that. So if you take location as kind of a, a, a key pillar of our litmus test, that's that is, you know, where we start and stop our opportunities. And then we just really focus on, on remaining as simple as possible through the process. And simplicity is very, very difficult to do. We tr spend a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out how we can deliver on the, on the simplest experience possible. But keeping that focus in mind is what really leads us to these outcomes that, that are valuable, that are creative, that are sustainable. You know, and because we have such a long-term investment horizon, it has to be sustainable. These are not, you know, brand endeavors for the sake of building a brand. These are endeavors for the sake of long-term value creation because we have the staying power to, to stick with these deals for the long-term. Our portfolio is intended to be owned and operated in perpetuity. And that's a little bit different. What does that mean? Because most operators are underwriting to a five to seven year hold period. So how is your strategy so different and why is that your approach? Principally, it's to do with our capital profile. So we invest all of our own money in our own deals. We have a limited pool of other private investors that invest al alongside us. And our horizon is indefinite. You know, we can look at a longer term return profile. Obviously, it needs to be a very good return profile. It needs to be market rate, but we can find our way to those kind of long-term IRRs, if you will, even though we don't really use that as a metric because we're not selling. You don't need IRR if you don't have a, an end date in mind. But our cash-on-cash -cash return profile you know, typically starts slower, but it can ramp up pretty dramatically later in these projects. And then you know, our attention to detail and our proprietary ownership preferences allow us to continue to enhance the projects as we go and that i think speaks to our geographic focus you know if we can be there a lot we can see the opportunities to improve or fix aspects of the project that need to be fixed preemptively or in a way that continues to allow the property or the experience of the property to evolve so there's not a fixed moment in time where these projects are done you know we've got our initial push to get it to what it needs to be with the new brand or the new concept. But then we're constantly servicing the experience. We're constantly layering on new pro programming opportunities. We're constantly looking at the competitive landscape and saying, who are we now? You know, we know who we are, but how do we become more of who we are in the marketplace? And how do we maintain our presence? I um, mean, the Scott Resort, for example, is now, I guess, going on five, six years. And the market has become even more competitive and it's even more noisy and more difficult to be 
a prominent experience in Scottsdale. And we're layering on more and more interesting programming. We're enhancing the offering that we have. You know, we, we know who we are and we, we have a great team who really understands what we offer. And then we let them tell us what we should do more of. We have programming there like five nights a week now. You know, we started the project with only two. Now, it's not, you know, crazy spend programming, but it's programming that resonates with the locals and the locals are incredible word of mouth referrals for business. There are also people that make the space feel good. And so keeping it energized, keeping it fresh, we've got a really interesting bar cart series where we do specialized meals twice a month. We've got a monthly rum. It's called the Rum Society where we have rum makers come in and do a specialized meal. So just allows our, our culinary team to you know, shine and have kind of bespoke, interesting one-off meals. And then it allows them to keep focused on what we do really well, which is our standard menu. So it just, by keeping ourselves and our team energized and excited about the experience at the property, it leads us to um, the ability to communicate that to our guests and that they keep interested and energized about the experiences that, that are on offer. I'm starting to see the magic now because I think one thing that so many people get wrong is they invest the majority of their capital in the physical, whether it's landscaping, the building, the guest room, the public areas, adding a new restaurant, but then they don't support that manager or they don't manage it right. They don't invest in the programming. Is being vertically integrated your most sought after competitive advantage, do you think? Could you do this if you weren't managing your own hotels? And that it's it's our biggest advantage and our biggest liability, you know, because it's such a heavy lift. It is so much work and it takes so much time and effort. Luckily it's what we love to do, right? I mean wouldn't be able to do this if you didn't love it and you weren't surrounded by a group of people that love doing it. Because at the end of the day, managing hotels is hard. And I take my hat off to professional managers. And these these folks are really in it, right? It's it's a passion. It's a craft. It's not just a business. You know, it's just it's it transcends business into a way of being and a way of seeing the world. So the vertical integration allows us to be really nimble and change and I hate the word we don't necessarily pivot, but it's we we iterate. And we can just do things and experiment with things very quickly and have immediate feedback that we can then talk about and debate. And the one other thing I would say, uh, in addition to kind of the vertical integration from a property management perspective, is the, the commitment that we make as a client to our designers. And so I think if I were a designer, I'd be really frustrated to do a project, create this beautiful thing take photos of this moment in time when it had just been completed and it looks exactly like the design team had intended and then to come back two or three or five years later and see it fall apart right and our commitment to the design team is that we will work very very hard to create these design pillars and concepts that can be brought to life physically and then actually grow beyond their initial expectation through the attention to detail and consistent enrichment that our operational team can layer in. And so that is a point of difference, not only to how these properties live and grow in the marketplace, but a point of difference 
to our commitment to the design team that they know when they work with us that we will really truly fight to keep their vision alive and to delight them as they return to the property to see how much more it could grow into than they had previously even thought of, for example, when the project was being scripted in its infancy. How do you and your operating team know how to continue the vision in the right way or to mold the vision to what the right way is? Are you there five nights a week picking the entertainment or are you kind of setting the guardrails and your team knows what that should look like? And then is there some communication with the designers? Like, hey, just checking to see if this is still cool. How does that work? All of the above. Yeah, absolutely. So with the design, you know, with these conceptual design teams that we work with, we do establish the brand narrative, like the design concept narrative. And then actually, we internally take that narrative and we transform it into an operational narrative. And and that's really my job. I mean, I'm I'm the translator because I, I go through that, you know, I create the design concept and I empower the design team to bring that to life. And then I swing back around to then retranslate that design concept into a tangible, actionable brand guide, experiential guide document that is then further disseminated through our HR team. And so my job is to make sure that when we hand off this project and that we ask our team to bring it to life, that they understand the essence of the project. They understand the the guardrails, the pillars. They can reference this visual and written document in a way that allows them to iterate and, and, but to do so in a way that fits within that nests within the concept. And so that there is communication, obviously, it's it's a communication problem, right? We need to communicate this brand and this vision in a way that can be easily understood. But you actually have a brand document that you can give to your team. If people turn over, you can give it to them. And that's something you hold them to and you go back to. 100%. And then at the front end of these projects, as we're translating this this concept, there's a lot of direct driving that I'm doing. There's a lot of creative collision, you know, as we translate it from a physical space to a, to a living space. And in the first year or so of the project, we're, we're constantly talking about what does this mean? How are these ideas make, you know, nesting within this concept? Does this feel true and right? And then there's this transitional period where, where the GMs who I'm really debating this with can, you know, take ownership of the concept. And then they're able to start making their own independent decisions and I'm in a point now with Scott where these this creative team that we have are coming up with these ideas. I didn't come up with the bar cart series. I didn't come up with some of these other programming elements. They're just doing it and they're informing me and saying, look, this is what we did. This is how it makes sense. This is why it's on brand. This is how the concept is further supported. And I'm just coming back and delighted and saying, like, this is awesome, guys. Like music makes sense, food nights make sense, brunches that you're doing make sense. And it allows them to again, be empowered and self-selecting, right? So these GMs are are hungry for that. That is awesome. I love it. It's, and, but you said, you said creative team, but I think I, it's really your GM, your food and beverage team. Like you don't have some separate creative operation team that's also at the hotel in addition to the people running the hotel. It's, it's the same team, right? 
Right. It's the same team. Yeah. So it's the operational team, but they're creative. They're they're empowered to be a creative partner in in this endeavor. So coming out of COVID, everyone is talking about these major trends, these big things that are changing, keyless entry, all this kind of stuff. What are the big trends and things that you're thinking about over the next five years, if any? Look, I think good quality service and timelessness is always on trend. Like, I think you can overcomplicate it. I think it's easy to to get mired in these these intricacies and try and pull on threads and come up with a new trend and do this and do that. But I think it, at its core, the honesty of an experience is the thing that is the most important to keep sight of. And what are the things that, what are the tools that you can use to leverage that? And what I mean by that is, you know, we just started doing self-check-in at High Country Motor Lodge. We have four self-checking kiosks and we have one front desk person who is called a guide. That person is just there to talk with you about the experiences that are available to you on property. They're not there to talk to you about how was your drive, what are you doing, and all the time filler that's required for the front desk agent to just fill the awkward spaces between handing over the credit card and checking you in. Like That's not a value-add hospitality experience. That's just an awkward, valueless, transactional moment. And so instead, you're checking yourself in, you're making your own key card, and there's a person who's there to talk to you about the Nordic Spa and to invite you to to get into the headspace of this experience and talk with you about the general store, which is our food and beverage concept that has an actual general store where you order at the counter and then the food comes out, which is you know, indicated to you using your cell phone and other technological support infrastructure. But at the end of the day, it's like, how do you quickly order and find your, your seat and then have the food brought out to you? And all we ask you for is your phone number so we can get a text message and you can either pick up the food or you can tell us where you're at. And so, you know, it's how do we layer on technology so it's additive and it's supportive of the idea of hospitality in its true essence of being convenient, being convivial, being seen, right, and being made feel special. And so we're actually, it's fun to taste, take these little test cases and then see if they work and then roll them out. So we're actually designing right now a new concept for our hotel in Laguna. It's called In at Laguna Beach. And we are changing the name, relaunching the brand, and it's going to be relatively high-rated experience. And we're going to do a self-check-in kiosk there as well. So, you know, six, $700 night hotel with a self-check-in kiosk, we might be the first at this high, high end of the market to do so. Pretty well, you're on to something because people aren't checking into a hotel to talk about the drive-in or the flight-in. They're there to talk about the experiences. And health and wellness today seems to be one of the top. Outdoors and nature seems to be up there. Is that something that you are spending a lot of time thinking about as part of your experience package? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all and it, it's all germane to the location. Absolutely. So wherever we can. We're just trying to be true to the experience. You know, at the end at Laguna Beach, we don't have room for a spa. We, of course, can bring spa experiences into your room. You know, those are those are hit or miss. It really depends on who your third-party spa partner is. But instead, you know, partnering with 
ways to get folks into the ocean, you know, stand up paddling and otherwise. Again, these are things that are that are enjoyable and they are accessible, but they're not much if you don't know about them. And so if you have the opportunity while you're checking in to self-check in to select, you know, your room and such, but then to be in a conversation with a guide to who who can talk to you and learn more about what your interests might be and then direct you in a way that can be a support of what you really want out of your stay that's really where we want to focus our training that's where we want our our team to be enhancing your 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 stay you know really be curious about what you want and having the time and space for us to try and unearth that and then of course you know recording that using content management systems to allow us to record your preferences so that you know you might stay with us in laguna one time but we know who you are when you get to Carmel and we say, you know, we saw that you went stand up paddling in Carmel. We don't have that here in Carmel, but we have sea kayak tours and maybe that's something that's going to be, you know, an interesting, delightful prompt for, for that guest who's decided to come up to us in, in Carmel. Is that something that you can actually do? Because that's very hard, but it it's, it's amazing when it's done right. We're working on it. That's a current focus. And so that, that is definitely not necessarily in our in our infrastructure right now but we're it's one of the technological leverages that we're we're unearthing at the moment and you know it's just how do we layer on the institutional ethos that you see at a very high quality experience like at a ritz carlton or four seasons and bring that to a, a bespoke kind of small quaint inn by the sea and you know it's all about punching above our weight so to speak and and doing it thoughtfully and, and strategically and and having a sense of entrepreneurship as as part of our DNA. I think that's helpful. I love it. It comes through. You are a master of moments. So I have a question that I want to close on with all the guests of the podcast. And it's something that I am often asked. And that is, what is your favorite hotel? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. So I don't think I have a favorite favorite, but I will say I had a favorite experience this last July. We went to Point Reyes for a wedding and we stayed at Moncas Inverness Lodge. And I'm not sure if you've stayed there. It actually just sold to a consortium led by Ken Folk. But we stayed there prior to that and the thing about that experience was it connected so deeply with the place that we were in it was it was a tiny little hotel room in an old boat shed above an old boat building shop on inverness bay and it was like we walked back in time and that was beautiful by itself but then they layered on these amazing simple but thoughtful hospitality elements most notably was the morning breakfast that arrived bundled in this beautiful wrapping of tin foil nested within this like linen tablecloth that was rolled and put inside this kind of cast iron basin that you kind of you know opened and smells and this kind of delightful experience and with a little card that talked about where it came from and why today was the day that we got to have you know waffles with the special honey syrup and this that and the other that were all 
so beautifully local in nature. And I think that's really hard to do, to go to a place and experience the place in such a beautifully authentic way is what it is that we all want to do when we're traveling. It's the most difficult promise to deliver on. And I think that one was very, very inspiring. So I would say at this stage, Moncus Inverness Lodge is a very, very special experience. It's a vibe. I'm in. I want to go. <laughs> and I think uh, it's exciting that Ken Folk bought it. These, there's a lot of designers getting into the hospitality space. I wonder if their hotel friends have told them how truly complicated it is. But if it results in more experiences like you just described, let's do it. I'm all for we'll it. We'll go back them. <laughs> this was amazing. I thank you so much for your time and what you shared. It was really just a fabulous conversation and I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be part of this and I'm so excited to see where it leads. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwerzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Wurzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.